I'm doing great. And we have Chad. You've got a sexy voice for radio. I do. I have a, I have a face for radio. Matter of fact, I, I was going to say it. You said it. I, mean, I have a face and a voice for podcast for uh, probably blogging, if anything. Right. It's great to see you, dude. <laughs> it's good to see you too. We you do remember? have. You can you can't see him because I got my laptop face. But here's Brent Piotti. Brent, how you doing, man? Hey, Chad. I'm doing well. Um, okay. I remember those times where we would like you know meet in Arizona and like you know conferences and stuff and yeah i've been to your basement twice yeah yeah so uh it's been it's been a long time i mean you've uh as a customer you opened the kimono for me right mm-hmm. and now as an emc i see less of your open kimono but you know still you're you're always busy with customers doing the same anytime thing you, you want to see my open kimono it's <laughs> <laughs> so it is uh what is today today is july 30th uh today is today is the 30th, the 30th. And if you haven't figured out by now, we have Chad Sackage on the phone. So uh, we're going to get right to this because Chad's time is like a toddler in a tiara. It's precious and short. So we, we got to get to work. I've heard people describe me that way. <laughs> never, never. So, uh, hey, you know, welcome to the hot aisle. I'm Brian Carpenter and my co-host. And I'm Brent Piatti. Yeah, that guy right there. We're going to speed through this thing here. The goal of this show. Yeah, don't. It's all no, good. No, I got things to do. I know you do. It's 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 perfect, Brian. And, okay. And look, if we if what you guys do is awesome, I've been listening to the podcast. I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan. Um, so so it'll take what it'll take. Yeah, we are we are going to do the uh, executive version this week, which is kind of the TLDR version, shorten it <laughs> a little bit. Uh, for those of you who've been using us to do your workout routines, this one we're going to go up. We're going to up the tempo and shorter workout, higher pace. Um, yep, hot so, and heavy. Hot yeah, and heavy. hot and heavy. So this is the Chad's Open Kimono edition mm-hmm. of the Hot Isle. We had you on here specifically today because it is our tenth, our tenth actual podcast, and you know, so we it was. You're the you are the dedicated person because it's the tenth one. I love it. Yeah, I love it. It makes me so happy. So we identified that very early on. We said on ten, Chad's going to be there. So we did. We we begged. I, I I hope that I I this is good for your listeners, so I can be a repeat. You know, a repeat host and guest. I mean, it's... Considering we have about six pages of notes, I think that actually you're probably going to have to come back. (laughs) Okay. So... You know what? So this is going to be great because if there's one thing I'm known for, it's short, concise answers. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Is that only verbal? (laughs) I have a folder. We actually... The whole thing, the way this podcast started for me, I actually made a joke with uh, Tommy Vitex and Trogdon about making a podcast where I read your emails and your blog posts so that people can listen to them while they're driving. And I was going to call it TLDR cast for like too long. <laughs> didn't read. It's all, I have the domain registered, everything. That is how this started. Uh, that is, that is, that is epic, man. So and, I've never executed on that. And for your listeners that, that uh, are not uh, EMC insiders, you know, that what, what you're referring to, Brian is, you know, like every, every couple of months I send out a, you know, just a brain dump and, uh, about everything that's going on, not just within EMC, but the federated set of companies. And I, I get teased as my executive comms is not normal. They're, you know, 10, 20 pages in length. It would be a book, a boring ass book, but a book nonetheless. And there went our, there went our PG rating as well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Chad, you are, uh, you are the priest, you're the, I don't know, actually, we're just going to call you Pops. Perfect. So you are the president of pre-sales globally. Yeah. And how many how many kids do you have, Pops? As part of my family, my brothers and sisters in the SE role around the globe, there's about about four thousand. Four thousand of us. Wow. Uh, Brent and I make up uh, you know some little tiny part of two of us there. 
uh, a very awesome and epic part of two. And we love it. So let's talk about this, though. You, I mean, you were, you are basically our number one aqua hire, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, we bought Elocity to get you is what I understand. Well, there was some really good intellectual property in there, man. I, I was, I was the, I was the bonus, not the other way around. Okay. Uh, we'll see. Cause I'm not sure we're using any of that iSCSI stuff. And I don't know that anybody from Velocity is still around. What is interesting is that if you trace the lineage of Velocity, many of the core developers, I'm not saying the IP here because that would be dangerous to say, but many of the core people that led the Elocity iSCSI target work eventually found themselves, who were in Boulder, found themselves in left hand. Many of those left hand people then found themselves now in solid fire. There's an there's a interesting lineage there of that IP. Um, some ideas are just simply before their time. Well, we're glad you're here. But the other part of the IP that actually we still actually do use some chunks of the code, but certainly several of the core ideas, was the idea that storage sucks. Um, it should be invisible, and it should be so automated and tied into the application stack that it would be software-defined in its data path, that was the iSCSI chunk, and software-defined control tied in the application stack. Does that sound familiar? It does, and it's mm. actually, well, you already opened up one of our questions we're about to ask in a little bit. So. As an SE, as mm-hmm. our global leader, if you were starting today, mm-hmm. um, what do you think is the critical skill set of somebody that they need to acquire that's going to be useful for the next 12 to 18 months as a, as a new SE, as a new, maybe not even just an EMC SE. Think, I mean, you could think outside of EMC, but yeah. as a new SE, what's the critical skill set? So, so the, the SE role keeps changing, but the, the two things that will be constant, and I, I, I would... I'd make a good solid wager on this, so maybe we can make a friendly wager that will be true ad infinitum, like it'll be true forever, um, is furious passion and a love of persuasion. SEs are very different than salespeople. They, they like to um, get excited and persuade, not with the purpose of the desire of a close, although we love to win. Every SE loves to win. But they love to convey how cool, interesting, compelling, and exciting something is. Which means you can be an introvert, you can be an extrovert personality type, but one thing you can't be is someone who's not passionate. Because people who are not passionate have no ability to persuade others. Right? So uh, you, you guys both have it. I mean, you can hear it. I mean, I've known, I've known that for a long time, but for people that don't know you guys, I mean, you can hear it in the podcast, right? You have a passion for what you're doing. Um, the second thing is the what you need to know is moving so fast. Um, you know, the domains of infrastructure that used to be separate worlds of storage, network, and compute, and you could build a career as an SE in one of those domains. They're so mashed up and intertwined now. It, that, that trying to create a distinction is really, really blurry, right? Uh, then you could go, well, it's all about management and orchestration. Well, yeah, that management and orchestration domain is now so wide and so vast that you see people getting brawls over, should I use Puppet Chef, Ansible? And the answer is whatever the hell works for you, right? And frankly, as soon as you feel like there's one that's got it nailed, the next thing you know, something cool comes along that you've never seen before. Then you've got people going, no, 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 it's all about the application layer and the data fabric layer. So you really need to know about what's going on in 
open source and how people are building new applications and how they're how they're building new data fabrics against which that application runs. All those statements are actually true. So how do you net that out to a single attribute for a career path for an SE? A technologist who is fundamentally curious. They love learning. So this, those were actually two principles actually in the pre-sales manifesto that I wrote almost four years ago, right? Um, they've always been true in my own personal career. I'm happiest actually when I'm passionately persuading. You can call it evangelism. You can, you can call it selling. You can call it whatever the hell you want. But it, it actually never works quite right if it's selling, right? It's, it's that you're, you think something is really cool and you're persuading and you have to have such a furious desire to learn um, that your mind is like a sponge, right? You're fearlessly learning things. And people are like, well, how do you do that? And the answer is, is that I don't know. You just kind of do. You, you know, it's people are like, well, I'd like a manual or a site that I could go to that I could synthesize like, you know, everything from. And I think that the answer is, is that your your mind is open like a beautiful flower, right? A sunflower, just getting the rays of the universe onto you, right? And again, it sounds like I'm being a little weird, which I am. But what I find is that great SEs anywhere I go, whether they're at EMC or not, they've got an ability where they are on the cutting edge and so plugged into all sorts of stuff. And when you ask them, how do you do that? The answers are really wildly variant. Um, they find it from a variety of sources. The only common ingredient is they seek out new learning. The how they do it wildly varies, right? Um, and where they get it wildly varies. But the one thing that never varies is seek out new learning. By the way, uh, so long answer once again, but by the way, that's the two, two things, passion and intellectually curious, right? A technologist. Um, the, the thing that kind of comes with those, by the way, is fearlessness. So, so um, this is actually one thing speaking as a nerd um, and a proud nerd. It's interesting. Many classically people would associate that with someone who is quiet, shy, um, which isn't introvert, extrovert dynamic, but, you know, not, not the opposite of fearless, fearful. Um, I'm finding, man, that the, the now that the nerds rule the world, we are fearless, right? Um, which which is a beautiful thing. Long answer, so, sorry guys. Yeah, so well, I you know I think it's a good point. Passion, I think we're seeing it not only in in this community, but uh, also just across EMC, right? You know, we had Scott Darling on a mm -hmm. couple episodes ago, and that guy is passionate, right? That guy's incredibly passionate about what he does, where he's getting information from, what he's learning. And that is part of, I think, just the DNA in EMC. We're like we're we're turning this humongous Titanic of a ship into something that's becoming um, more tuned in to what's going on, uh, uh, um, executing quicker, failing faster. Yeah. Um, so that said, you know, Scott was like, "Hey, Chad's kind of my right hand man when it comes to finding out the new and cool stuff." Um, so. You you get to see stuff before anyone else does, right? I, just because you're you're on the inside track, right? So Scott's a cool dude, you know, just for what it's worth, and uh, I love my job. I love my job. I love working with guys like you. Uh, I love w working with all of my pre-sales brothers and sisters in the field. I love interacting with customers. I love interacting with engineering teams. 
That all said, there's two meetings that occur on biweekly basis that are just so freaking cool. Uh, one is the Product Strategy Forum, which is run by John Rose in the office of the CTO, where we're looking at what is the integrated strategy, um, you know, both in the tactical timeframes and the long timeframes. And the other one is is the Big Moves meeting. And the Big Moves meeting is where we, you know, uh, think about what do we do from the ventures and from the M&A standpoint, right? And, uh, you know, to be a fly on the wall on those things is, uh, it, it's a great honor to be part of that process with, with Scott. My role in there, like you said, is, is, to, is to be the synthesis of what great SEs do all the time, which is the intersection of the technology and the customer, right? I, I'm, I'm trying my best to represent my 4,000 brothers and sisters and all the customers that we interact with in that, in that moment, right? But there's stuff in there where we make an acquisition that shows up visibly you know, at, at a given time frame, what people don't know is, you know, four years prior, we invested in that company. And people are like, oh, it's such an innovative acquisition. I can't believe it. I didn't see that at all. And, you know, it, it should be an inspiring thing for all the employees and our customers, frankly, to go, wow, they, they, they saw that coming, you know, four years ago. There's a lot of bets that we make that don't pay off. But the ones that do, it's, it's pretty cool. In any case, sorry, Brent. No, that's fine. I, I think you kind of answered the question that I had, which is, do you get to see stuff prior to to inception or or acquisition uh, or in investing? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, this is the open kimono edition. So Chad, uh, without getting anyone fired here, um, is there anything that you're super excited about that no one knows about, um, and maybe you can hint at? Yeah. So so you know the the areas of of um of investment, both organic and inorganic, meaning you know the stuff that we're venture funding as well as uh, doing a lot of advanced R&D into, are in, in a couple of buckets. So uh, the first bucket is uh, the whole new world of in-memory data fabrics, both on the, um, the fabric itself and the infrastructure that supports it. So the fabric itself would be things like Spark and Spark successors. You know, again, like Spark is just getting cool, but of course you can, you know, whenever anything is starting to hit its stride like that, um, there's always weird innovation that's popping out already behind it, right? Um, again, that's not to say it's going to displace Spark, right? Spark's no longer even cool, right? <laughs> even before it, like, you know, gets in the mainstream. But basically there's this whole world of, how would you design a data fabric if you could just remove all of your legacy? And um, I, you know, I, I, one thing that's I think is fascinating, maybe for for listeners, is the company that I think is simultaneously a respected giant, an incredible partner, a huge competitor, but I think fundamentally vulnerable in ways that people don't internalize is Oracle. Right, each one of the the giants has got a cash cow that's in the process of being disrupted. In their case, it's the database and, and the core legacy application stack. You know, if you look at all these technologies that are a, some of them already in place, um, key value stores in memory databases, uh, scale out um, next generation database architectures, Spark inside the Hadoop ecosystem, and the stuff that's coming behind it. Man, you would just never design a high performance, highly resilient, highly 
transactional system on a traditional relational database that's almost 30 freaking years old, right? Like that's, and that's a, you know, $80 billion a year business that's in the process of being disrupted. So that would be number one, in-memory data fabrics and next generation data fabrics in general. And then I made a hint at the infrastructure that supports them. The DSSD thing is one visible example, you know, that again, we've, it was visible at one point. It's been invisible but active for a really long time. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, their eyes kind of perked up over the Micron and Intel announcement about their next generation memory technologies. Um, the amount of stuff that we do inside that space of next generation memory technologies and how will they be consumed and how will they be leveraged, not just in terms of raw media, but then what stacks do they then enable is, is a really cool space. So that category one, next gener generation data fabrics and the infrastructures to support them. The other place is basically around um, next generation infrastructure as a service and PaaS spaces. So um, there's something called Project Bonneville within VMware, which is really cool and really interesting. And uh, any listeners who have not bought their tickets to VMworld, I would highly encourage you to, uh, where you're going to hear a lot more about that. But there's a lot of work that's going on actually within Cloud Foundry around Lattice, which is a cluster manager at, at very large scale, as well as within EMC, where we're actually making some contributions to Kubernetes and Kubernetes-like things. These are all basically forms of, of infrastructure as a service functions that bias towards cloud native applications, right? I've given you three examples that are organic. Anytime that we have organic examples, there's usually two, three, 10 inorganic bets that we've made inside that domain. So the way that, you know, I've, I've seen us operate is, is that we bet small, we bet early, and we bet in many places, right? So we pick a segment and kind of, you know, go in in a way that we did over the last four years in the OpenStack domain, right? Ultimately, that, that matured, consolidated, and, and, you know, you can see that the OpenStack players all got consolidated minus Mirantis, right? Um, the uh, next area is security and analytics. It was actually really interesting because the, the again, I'm, look, I'm, I'm realizing now, oh, my God, what a rambly answer. For <laughs> listeners, this is a small hint of what Brian was talking about in my, <laughs> in my memos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Luckily, you summarized the first one for me because I was in the middle of summarizing the first one. It was passion and be a flower. Um, so, so right now we're talking about, uh, you know, in memory and we're talking about platform yeah. and then what's next. So, so it was data fabrics and the infrastructure that support next generation data fabrics, really exciting space. The second one was infrastructure as a service and PaaS stacks, both focused at traditional monolithic workloads, but a lot of really interesting stuff going on around these new cloud native app stacks that just need very different things from the whole infrastructure strata. Um, the third, the third bucket that I was starting to talk about was security and security analytics. An analyst on one of uh, on our earnings call basically said, "Hey, you know what's going on with the RSA business?" And Joe was like, "No, that you guys have got to understand. This is a uh, a very uh, positive business for EMC as a whole. Um, uh, very good, very profitable. Uh, but more important than that, it's a question of like when you go and you talk to a customer." Security is, is the one thing that basically gets a CEO 
you know, in trouble, and the board in trouble if you if you get um, if you get compromised in any way. Which you know, sadly, there's a lot more examples occurring uh, around the globe. We've got some great assets. We, you know, we, we're going to have to continue to actually expand that asset pool, again, both organically and inorganically. Lots of interesting stuff there. The other thing that, you know, is fascinating is, is that we continue to double down in the SDS space. So there's early stage venture funding and organic efforts around all sorts of SDS stacks. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember four years ago, I used to get just a completely idiotic question from analysts that says, when will you have one storage stack to rule them all? Because clearly that's the winning strategy. Well, it's kind of panned out. Yeah, everyone's now understanding there is no unicorn. There is no magic thing that does it all. But customers do want more and more of their storage stacks to be very decoupled from from hardware. And while we've got, I would argue, the world's best transactional store in scale I.O., and for customers that want VMware only, vSAN, um, we've got uh, the world's, in my opinion, coolest, most awesome object store in ECS, uh, which is a pure SDS stack. Um, and, uh, you know, we've telegraphed it enough that I don't think I'm going to get myself in trouble. There is going to be a pure software-only version of Isilon as well. So 1FS is a pure software stack. It's already out there as a VM. That's not what I'm describing. Yeah, that's VM so cool. Yeah, so exactly. So the VM so cool. By the way, people are interested. All of those are available for just download. So if you go to emc.com, WAC, get scale.io, you download it, go to town. If you go to WAC, get ECS, boom, download it, go to town. Uh, if you go to get Isilon, currently you're going to get the VM version, which is cool. But uh, w- there will be a software-only version of Isilon. So we're going to have transactional file and, and object very well covered, right? But we're not going to stop there. There's a lot of really interesting things going on, not only in NorCal, which listening to the Scott Darling, you know, um, example, but in Israel, that the webcast was, was podcast was really good on, on, he was talking a lot about NorCal, how that's the center of, uh, of North America. He kept saying North America, right? The hubs, the other hub in Israel is a fascinating, you know, startup and venture funding hub. And so, yeah, I got to say that, um, so, you know, all this kind of virtual stuff, the software-defined storage, uh, I've been bringing it up a lot more in, in, in front of customers, and they're loving it, not necessarily for, for uh, immediate production use, but they're loving it because they don't have to mess with their production workload and workspace today, right? They can they can deploy a virtual VNX. They can deploy a virtual Iceland mm-hmm. and play with those and see what would happen if we had 10 in our environment or replicating and try to break stuff. Yeah. That's what's getting them excited now. And once they're comfortable with truly running software-defined storage, then the next iteration, the next leap is where do we run that in either the private cloud or the public cloud or some combination of yeah. both. The, the one thing that has been fascinating to me is I've noticed, I spent a lot of time on the road. I've, on any given day, I'm talking usually to three, four customers. Some days it's eight, you know, or in a large form, many. But universally, as they approach this SDS plus commodity thing, everybody's thinking about it. Everyone's trying to figure out where, how, you know, the, the learn play uh, is for sure, right? Um, I've noticed that basically they're like, yeah, I want to have one of these architectures where I can layer it on on top of any hardware and and therefore change my economic model. And I've 
I've, I've been drawing like a circle on a board and filling it out, but not showing it to the customer and go, let me ask you a couple questions. And we go around this circle and then I show them the circle and kind of go like, you're not alone on this journey. Step one of the circle is, do you have software that I can run on any hardware? Answer, yes. Transactional, object, and soon a great scale-out NASDAQ. All of them are scale-out stacks. Yes. So I can deploy that on any hardware? Absolutely. Even stuff I don't get from you? You betcha. Great. Step two, what hardware do you recommend? What do you mean? Well, surely you would recommend some hardware and no, you can run it on any hardware you want. I mean, yeah, there's some OS, you know, characterizations that need to be limited. And yeah, there's some, but you could literally run on any HP, Cisco, Dell, Quanta, Supermicro thing you want. Cool, cool. Got it. All right, all right. So which one have you tested? Well, we tested on these ones, but it, it, any one you want. Okay, got it. All right, check. Um, so... If we were to have a problem, like how would we support it? Well, look, you know, regardless of what you think about the EMC brand, most customers say it's someone you can trust. You know, that we'll, we'll have your back. We won't let you down. If there's an issue, we, we won't point the fingers. But ultimately, Mr. Customer, if it is the hardware, you'd be responsible for it. Got it. Hmm. Okay. Um, so next step. So just... How would I deal with like a sparing um, and, and, and mech replacement? And wait a second, I haven't thought about it. Like what, ha- what happens if I do a firmware update and the qualification of that? Like how, how, does, how does that work? And, and how would I detect the hardware failures and who would do the... And I'm like, well, you would? <laughs> and oh, I don't like that answer. <laughs> and then the customer comes back with the, I've got a great idea. What if you were to pick the hardware, commodity off-the-shelf hardware, bundle it, take care of integrated support, and then provide it to us as SDS plus hardware? And, and I'm like, so you want us to ship you an Isilon cluster and take off the faceplates? Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that circle... Uh, so far in all of my travels, except for the biggest customers, they're unable to, 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 to manage their own hardware layer. So in any case, that, that's a fascinating dialogue. I, I don't know. Do you see the same thing? Yeah, I, I certainly think that, that that's true. Um, it's interesting, right? Because the customer in that instance is like they're going back to infrastructure resiliency, right? Um, it's funny because I was just talking to the Pivotal folks yesterday, and, and, and they have a pretty large company that's running Hadoop on UCS blades, and they're like the Bugatti blades, right? They're these huge, crazy, and I'm like, ah, that really defeats the purpose, right? Mm-hmm. But it's kind of to your point, like, well, what about uh, support for this? If I run it software only and I've got it on this, like, who's going to, like, people are freaking out a little bit. They don't. They're so used to EMC and HP and Dell and everyone supporting them, having this ecosystem of support that uh, they don't exactly know what to do when it's time for them to have the onus on managing their support, on managing their infrastructure, and ensuring that it, that it remains resilient. I think, um, I think people, just like people, don't entirely grok that open source is like, free speech, not free beers. It's about, it's not about commercials. It's about community, right? 
because open source is not free. That's the first, you know, little bit that people need to have reset in their brains. Ironically, not the people that actually do a lot with open source that are very used to the fact that, hey, it's there's going to be a distribution. I'm either going to pay for a support model or some differentiated value on top of it. The value in open source is the fact that there's there's freedom of movement and innovation. On Chris Meller had a thing on the register where he basically went, software defined, I want to just strangle somebody, right? Like, what the F is this all really about? In the end, if you take an SDS stack like Scale.io and it gets bundled with hardware, is it the software defined thing? Is it a hardware defined thing? Is Isilon a software defined thing or a hardware defined thing? Um, the point is that there's some architectures that have tight hardware dependencies, some that have loose hardware dependencies, and some that have no hardware dependencies. How they then get packaged is actually about how customers want to consume stuff, right? And ultimately, the benefit of SDS is not in simple packaging. Like um, open source, it's actually about free speech, not free beers, about not commercials, but community. The SDS stacks, since they're more easily accessible and more easily deployable, it means that you can iterate and innovate more quickly than when the only way to access something is some, you need to talk to a rep and sign a million dollar PO to get something, right? Ultimately, in the end, by the way, the million dollar CapEx PO might be the right way for a customer to consume something with a support model. In any case, long and rambly. At least I know myself. <laughs> yes. And in Chris's article specifically, I thought that the definition of software defined meant that it looked at, it appeared either you're not allowed to actually sell hardware at any point in your business or that he had to like you as one or the other. Like, <laughs> you know, so um, you know, you've, you've kind of, it's almost like you've been reading my notes and I know you're not because they're like one point font on the screen. Um, but you've been talking about software defined and, you know, the question was really around dis- disruption. You talked about it. The big guys are being disrupted. Um, this enterprise, big iron, mm-hmm. this Oracle thing, you know, this, this monolithic stack thing is being disrupted. And part of it was dis- disrupted by things like data services. And you look at like mid-range players, even like our own mid-range products, mm-hmm. where they're kind of disrupted ourselves. And that took a little while. We're to the point where now, you know, VNX picks up like 1,200 new customers a quarter or something like that. It's crazy. Almost almost 1,400. Right. And it, it, that's amazing. Um, there, there's going to be a similar disruption. You're already talking about it. You keep saying the same word. There's a, there's a similar disruption with software defined. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that, that kind of that tipping point? We're not going to call it jumping the shark, right? But yeah. that big tipping point where software defined becomes the disruptor of all the other things that were universally accepted as how you do things today. So, so uh, one thing that I'm, I'm uh, learning is uh, that I should give more short, concise answers. Um, and the reason, I, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of that is that people want simplicity in their, in their brains and they want harmony and the harmony comes from making things polarized, black and white. You can see it in the national political debate, not just here in the US, but in any country, right? People want right, wrong, black, white, growth, decline, uh, yeah, dead, alive, you know, like, and it's interesting because basically the, the real answer requires a degree of mental sophistication and nuance. 
and us poor humans, we are not good <laughs> at nuance, right? Disruption doesn't mean, for example, that extreme I.O. replaces VMAXs. What it means is that VMAXs start to find their best sweet spot, the sweet spot where those enterprise data services for the you know, most classic monolithic applications that need things like SRDF um, are, are core prerequisite and to be the best in that market segment. And uh, all flash arrays can cannibalize workloads that, that uh, don't belong in that that footprint. Likewise, my earlier Oracle example, it's not that Oracle is going to disappear, the relational database is going to somehow evaporate. But if you try to, if you're Oracle or EMC, and you try to protect that cash cow, that, that, that mature thing that you, you're used to, and push it into zones where it's not its sweet spot, things generally go sideways. So here's the interesting observation then about the mid-range space, which is where you were asking, Brian. What is the true space that those mid-range architectures, which are characterized as type 1 architectures using my storage phylum thing, right? Two brains attached to some sort of persistence pool, right? What's, what's, their, what's their, the place that nothing can match them? In the same way that you've got classic, uh, you know, tier one enterprise data service platforms where nothing can match them when it comes to reliability, availability, serviceability, resilience, uh, incredibly rich remote replication, uh, all sorts of system attached. Nothing can match that. That's, that's their, their spot that they, they need to own and win. And workloads that don't need that stuff but are highly transactional will move off. Great. The database analogy is, okay, there's some places where you need a single ACID-compliant, SQL-compliant relational database, but stuff that doesn't need that stuff should probably come off, right? In mid-range land, what's your answer on the, the space that that mid-range architecture, classic mid-range architecture, nothing beats it? I would say traditional kind of just, you know, virtual storage infrastructure, right? So the the standard applications that kind of there's there's three or four of them that you know they can kind of spread them out just kind of do whatever with one dies there's three or more that are doing the job the 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 answer that i would give uh i i, I don't disagree with that that um statement i would add a little bit around it's very difficult to make something that's very small out of a scale out architecture Right. So in other words, when you're talking about something where someone says, I want something that can be a persistence layer for a lot of different stuff, but I'm in the 10K budget range or the 50K budget range, you know, literally, if you take a, the smallest vSAN cluster you can deploy is three nodes, right? Um, could you do that underneath that budget band? Well, yeah, but, you know, you'd end up with a relatively... Uh, poor storage density thing. And the same thing's true of scale I.O. too, by the way, right? Um, their sweet spot is as, as you scale them out, right, to larger scales. When you're small, the classic two-brain attached to persistence thing allows you to make things that are actually physically small, have a low COGS, cost of goods sold, and low cogs equals low price, <laughs> right? Um, 
And uh, also, since their storage stacks are relatively simple, they can be relatively feature-rich. That's the space of Nimbles, of NetApp FAS platforms, of VNXs, of, of all sorts of stuff. And, and again, uh, they're incor- incorrectly characterized, in my opinion, as you know, old, new, everything, everything is old and new simultaneously, <laughs> right? Um, so the sweet spot of VNXs actually is start small, one. Part two, be able to do lots of things moderately well. And then the last one where they have an intrinsic architectural space that is, you know, that will persist regardless of how the industry moves is very dense bit buckets for applications that scale up, not out. Okay, now what the hell do I mean by that? In uh, non-software defined, but bundle. Uh, we we like in our current generation VNX, we've got uh, 120 spindles in 3U. That's our you know standard disk enclosure that we have in the in, you know today, right? Um, in 3U, you're going to be hard-pressed to do that. Now, could you take an open compute storage thing and then bolt it to a server and then build? Yeah, you could. But if you go through the math of how much it would cost to do something like that, you end up with something that's more expensive than a NetApp FAS platform or a Nimble Array or a, or a VNX. And so the, the observation here is that's the true market of those architectures. So your question was, what will happen with software defined? The answer is, is that any workloads that are actually really those same virtual computing instances where you need something transactional, but it scales not up, but scales out, the SDS ones tend to win. And there'll be a fair amount of cannibalization of those architectures with things that are hyper-converged or software defined plus commodity. Um, so let me try to see if I can summarize this for the listeners that are going, oh my God, my chat isn't too verbose and not clear. Classic tier one storage is a big island. That island is shrinking to its true natural size. Its true natural size is where its architecture is unbeatable. That architecture for classic tier one storage is basically workloads that need the highest RAS, reliability, availability, serviceability, broad host attached mainframe, blah, 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 and data services like that are things like SRDF and TimeFinder at huge scales with crazy RPOs, RTOs, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing else beats those architectures there. Otherwise, it's being cannibalized by all flash arrays and other things, right? If you try to stop that as opposed to embrace it, eventually customers realize it and start to push back. Classic tier two or mid-range storage architectures is an island, that island is shrinking. That island is shrinking to its natural size. What is its natural size? It's defined by its system architecture, not how you market, position, or sell. That position is basically things that start really small, are able to do a variety of things very well, but not the best, and for applications that scale up and need big bit buckets. If you have one of those classic architectures, but it's not supporting those true architectural spots, it's going to get cannibalized by SDS, either in hyper-converged form or just add your own server form.
Does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. So we uh, we we respect your time again. You gotta you gotta run. So we can uh, always do an episode too. If I first, this is a call. This is a shout. This is a call out. Um, episode two, if you can make the time. I know what your schedule is like at Dude, VMworld. We'll make it work. Um, I would love to have an episode two at VMworld live on the floor. So let's get that done if we can. Happy to do it. We'll see you there. I think by then Brent will have uh, kind of gotten over this whole baby thing that he's trying to do. <laughs> uh, he's try- he's, his, his wife was due yesterday. He told oh her to Oh, my God, on. Brent. Yeah. Congratulations, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, so, we're still waiting. So uh, I insist that you tell me when the baby's born. So he's got it. He's got to tell me. He, well, he'll send a text to yeah. you and I yeah. with a picture of the baby. I've also told him he needs to beat my my daughter's size, which was eight pounds six ounces. VMworld, August thirtieth. You're going to be there. You're in like four sessions, three or four sessions. Ask the ask the expert industry titans. Ask the expert V bloggers. Uh, the bleeding edge, which you know, face melting, face ear meltingly melting, awesome. The bleeding edge, all that kind of stuff. Talking about PaaS, private hybrid, all that kind of stuff. And you know, is there obviously there's going to be big releases. Oh yeah. So are you telling? Are you going to give me any heads up? No. <laughs> no, it's obviously VMware's event. Uh, VMware's uh, lining up some big news, um, and so so is EMC. So so Brian and Brent, a thank you. Looking forward to you know seeing you at VMworld. Just to the listeners out there, whether you're EMC, if you're EMCers, thank you for all the great stuff you do every day. Just listening to myself, I realized, holy smokes, this uh, you know, it's we live in a complex world. And we're a portfolio company. We need to keep things simple for our customers, right? You can actually summarize everything I was saying as, yep, there's stuff that we're solving at the infrastructure layer. There's stuff that we're solving at the PaaS layer. There's stuff that we're solving at the storage layer. The answer on storage, anyone who says that there's one architecture to rule them all is high, right? There is no unicorn, Ergo, the answer is you need to have a portfolio that spans all these things. Now, it doesn't mean that every customer needs to have every single thing that, you know, you want exactly the minimum amount, but you want none less, right? So so just all of that dialogue, if you distill it down, you know, customers have needs for different persistence architectures from soup to nuts. So, just, you know, again, I know that I it was long-winded, but I, A, thank you. Thank you both to you guys. And, and, and Brent, I'm dead serious. I want to know when the baby's born. The, the, the one thing that uh, I never expected in my career is that as the team got bigger and bigger, um, with 4,000 employees, this is a bit of a downer to end on, but it, uh, hopefully I'll turn it into a, an up. I'll, <laughs> pull it up, Chad. Pull up, pull up. Don't honor it. Pull up. Terrain. Terrain. The, 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 you, you see very sad things every day. You know, you see human tragedies. um, You see people uh, dealing with health issues themselves or their their loved ones. Um, You get to see um, difficult trade-offs that have to get made in the business for the the sake of the customers, the shareholders overall. Um, Investments in some places, disinvestments in other places that, you know, through certain lenses just don't seem fair or right. Um, The human tragedies are always the heaviest, right? The flip side that I never expected is you get to see human joy, right? Um, and uh, one of the most joyful things in the world, Brent, is a baby. Um, yeah. So, so I'm I'm really excited, man. Um, Thanks. Yeah, good, me too. Good luck. Is this number one? Thank you. This is the first one. It's a baby girl, Mackenzie. Uh, tell me, tell me that you're going to take time off. 
Yeah, I am. I'm going to take full advantage of the uh, the paternal leave that that EMC offers. Uh, great, great perk. Um, I, I I'm still going to be available electronically, right? I no. I don't think anyone wants to catch up um, a, a month of emails, but um, yeah. I I remember when my first daughter was born, and I'm holding her uh, in my arms for the first time. And I was like, yep, this is uh, my world is radically altered. And, you know, the moment of love that you feel for, for your baby the first time. Dude, it's incredible. Don't answer your emails, please, okay? Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> your, your priorities are not in the correct order. So, so just <laughs> yeah, just put me on your out of office, dude. I got your back. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, I like that. Hey, I appreciate it. Um, well, very good, uh, Chad. You know, certainly. Again, we appreciate your time. We're going to have to do this again. Uh, we've got so much more content, and and you're just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, so this was the executive version of the open kimono. But uh, for for anyone out there that you know doesn't uh, hasn't heard of you and doesn't know where to uh, contact you or learn more. Um, what are the best ways to, to learn more and get a hold of you? So Virtual Geek, uh, I've got like six or seven posts in the hopper that I just need to complete. So it's been a little dry over the last two weeks, but I've been traveling all over Asia and it's been, whew. but so virtualgeek.typepad.com. Um, on Twitter, uh, it's at S-A-K-A-C-C. I wish I'd been a little more creative on that one. So last name, first initial, <laughs> um, by the way, sending me a DM is actually way better than sending me an email. So, so like if you really need to get a hold of me, my my filter of priorities is emails. There's like three thousand a day. I try my best, but sorry, um, it's actually like harder to deal with than the Twitter stream of consciousness. <laughs> That's all from the V specialist list. Yeah, let's be honest. The, the the sending me a DM is the next most likely to get through. Sending me an SMS message is like the whoop, whoop. It's a red alert, right? So if you, if you need to get a hold of me, that's that's the other way. So, um, and uh, yeah, those, okay. those are the best ways. And uh, are, are you are you reading a, a book right now? Uh, I am actually, but it's not it's not a business book or a technology that's book. That's fine. Um, God, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the book. It's great. It's this uh, author, uh, something more, Christopher Moore. If you haven't read Christopher Moore books, they are off the wall, right? Uh, weird fiction. Uh, you know, don't read them if you're uptight. Um, so, so you know, but if, if you've got a creative mind, um, I'd highly recommend them. They're, they're, there's, there's a whole bunch of them. They're, they're, yeah, they're pretty I light see Lamb, a dirty job. Oh, my God. <laughs> lamb, lamb, fiends. Lamb, <laughs> lamb is such a gas. Uh, again, it's not for people that struggle, you know, with a rigid worldview. I'm, I'm like, how do I say this, right? But, but you know, if you do not have a, a particularly structured worldview, you know, I, I, Lamb is a gas. Lamb is just a, a great read. And I actually try to flip-flop between, like, technology stuff and completely non-technology stuff because, man, you know, we're, we're all humans. Yeah. Well, very good. So so going back to the social thing, I, uh, we can't encourage our listeners enough to get social, right? Reach out to uh, Brian, myself. Uh, let us know what you think, what topics you want to hear about, who you want to have on the show. Um, and we'd certainly love to hear from everyone. So with that... Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening uh, to The Hot Isle today. My name is Brent Piotti. My name is Brian Carpenter. And we will see you guys soon. And Thank hope, you. Yeah, and hopefully we're going to see baby Mackenzie soon. I'm excited. Yep, I'll send it out to the world. <laughs> <laughs>